Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. The Speaker is independent. He's making these decisions on his own. The House considers next steps over the Speaker's Liberal Convention video. We'll hear from three MPs. They just come up with pronouncements out of the blue without consulting with us. Alberta Ottawa tension continues on climate policy. Premier Danielle Smith offers her side of the argument on methane emissions. And... Today and every day, we have a responsibility to continue to fight to end gender-based violence right across the country and eventually around the world. Canadians mark a somber anniversary, 34 years since the Montreal massacre. What needs to happen today for ending gender-based violence? I'll ask the head of the Canadian Women's Foundation. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson, in for Michael Serapio. Conservatives are threatening to delay the holiday break for MPs, raising the specter of thousands of votes unless the government offers more carbon tax relief. Pierre Polyev making the pledge after accusing senators of, in his words, gutting a conservative bill on exemptions for farmers. We are going to put in thousands of amendments at committee and in the House of Commons, forcing all night round the clock voting to block your $20 billion of inflationary spending and the rest of your economically destructive plans until you agree to our demand to take the tax off farmers, First Nations and families. You will, know, you will have no rest until the tax is gone. We have an opposition leader who is so ideologically opposed to protecting the planet that he's willing to take Parliament hostage and stop Parliament from supporting workers, stop, stop Parliament from supporting families, and stop Parliament from supporting Ukraine as well. The leader of the opposition has threatened to ruin the holidays if his ideological demands are not met. Let us be clear, we will keep working for Canadians while the Conservative leader is only fueled by the sound of his own voice and has no real plan for this country. We will never back down from supporting Canadians. Also today, more House debate on the House Speaker and the Conservative privilege motion about Greg Fergus's video message at an Ontario Liberal convention. That motion would see the Procedure Committee report back by next Thursday on what should happen. Let's hear now from MPs on this. We have Liberal Kevin Lamoureux, Conservative Chris Warkington and the NDP's Daniel Blakey. Welcome to all three of you. Mr. Lamoureux, the amendment vote on that December 14th deadline was unanimous today. Why are you and other Liberals looking for the committee to deal with this before Christmas? Well, at, at the end of the day, uh, we, we look at the situation and wanting to be able to see it uh, resolved. Um, and as the motion itself indicates, they would like to be able to see it, uh, the issue remedied by uh, the Procedures and House Affairs Committee. Having said that, I am somewhat concerned uh, in the sense that this should be uh, an apolitical, let's leave the partisanship uh, to the side uh, and allow PROC to come up with a remedy to, to the situation uh, based 
based on yesterday's debate inside the, the chamber. I'm concerned that the uh, Conservative Party has already drawn conclusions where you have some members saying that the Speaker should be resigning. Uh, and and I, I hope that that attitude doesn't carry over to the PROC because we're asking PROC uh, to, to come up with the ultimate remedy for the situation. Right, and Mr. Warkington, uh, your party has demanded Mr. Fergus's uh, res resignation before this committee would even meet. So is there anything short of resignation that you're prepared to accept? No, there's not. Quite frankly, the speaker came out after the first partisan speech that he gave and broke uh, convention, uh, having uh, a, spe a speech at the uh, Ontario Liberal Convention as a speaker in his robes, uh, filmed in his speaker's office, taking uh, a very partisan perspective uh, in that message. And uh, the speaker came out shortly after and said, please, you know, he, he, he was pleading with parliamentarians to, to allow him to continue on as speaker. He said, my, my future actions will, will demonstrate that, that I've learned from this. Then he raced down to Washington on the taxpayer's dime and had another partisan speech where he again talked about his his liberal you know his his all of his liberal connections it's unprecedented that we have a speaker that would would do this once never mind twice um, quite frankly i'm surprised that there isn't more calls for his resignation but right now it is the conservative party follow the the block uh, called for the resignation even before we did uh, this is nearly half of the house of commons who is currently calling for uh, the speaker to res resign this is untenable uh, the speaker cannot continue in this situation. Okay, well, let me bring you in, uh, Mr. Blakey, because you do have the Conservatives and the Bloc calling for Mr. Fergus to resign. Why hasn't the NDP taken that step yet? Well, this certainly is a serious situation. And so what we're doing, the like Conservatives chose to raise this as a point of privilege in the House. It was found that there was a prima facie case. It's going to the Procedure and House Affairs Committee. So we're going to let this process play out. We were the first to call for Speaker Rota's resignation. That was something that embarrassed Canada on the international stage and hurt, frankly, a lot of Canadians who, uh, whose, whose families had experience with the Holocaust in the uh, Second World War. So that was something where there were international repercussions, where people at home were really hurting. These charges uh, are very serious of uh, partisanship in respect of Mr. Fergus, and we think it's appropriate that the procedure in House Affairs take a very good look at this. And the fact that two parties already have called for his resignation is also something serious, but I'm not gonna prejudge what members of uh, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee will have the opportunity presumably to hear from Mr. Fergus, I would imagine, and to, and to hear more about some of the claims that he's made about, you know, whether, what the understanding was about how the video would be used and whatnot. But these are certainly very serious allegations that have been made. I don't think it's a good look for the speaker uh, to be appearing in uh, partisan contexts like this. It's not helpful. And so we'll see what the Procedure and House Affairs Committee ultimately has to say. Uh, but it's important that that process happen and it's, it's important that it happens swiftly. Okay, Mr. Lammer, you've just heard Conservatives and the NDP uh, talking about Mr. Fergus uh, and that video. How will he uh, be able to build trust with parties that want him to step down if indeed he remains in the role? Is there actually a way forward for him to continue regardless of what actually comes out of the procedure committee on this uh, question of privilege? Well, I think that what's important here as we go over the next number of days is there has to be a sense of fairness to the process. Um, you know, and that's why it's so critically important when you talk about the Speaker's office or the House of Commons, this is 
an, like an institution. And there has to be that sense of fairness. And that's why during the debate uh, yesterday, I emphasized how important it is that we leave politics outside the door when the, uh, and allow PROC to do what it can do in terms of looking at possible remedies. That includes meeting, uh, having a discussion with the speaker, maybe uh, uh, talking to some or inviting other former speakers to be able to make uh, presentations. I don't think that we should be uh, trying to be uh, passing a judgment, what I would suggest to you is prematurely, before we really know and appreciate uh, all the facts at hand. Uh, and as I say, I think Canadians have a sense of wanting to see uh, fairness also applied. Well, Mr. Warkin, I'll let you reply to that because once again, you've said uh, that Conservatives want resignation. So if there are hearings over the next week, uh, with the procedure committee, what are you actually going to be looking for here? Well, I, I think it's really hilarious what Kevin just said. He said that members of parliament should not engage in partisanship. Well, that is exactly what has brought us here, is we have a speaker, the only member of parliament that is actually forbidden from engaging in partisanship. He went out and proactively, in his speaker's robes, in a video from, from the speaker's office, uh, engaged in extreme partisanship. That's what brought us here. And so for the, the speaker who is to serve as the referee of all members of parliament, who should have trust of all members of parliament that in, in that he would not, that he will not as speaker engage in partisanship is now that we have the Liberal Party saying that nobody should engage in partisanship. We, sh we should all set that aside and, and judge the, the, the speaker for, I'm not sure what, uh, it's ridiculous, it's laughable. Quite frankly, it's, it's getting to the point where this is entirely a farce. Uh, the, the Liberal Party position is increasingly uh, a, a comedy routine. And, and frankly, I think that Canadians have great reason to be concerned about where the Liberal Party is standing on this, on this situation. It demonstrates how unserious they are about uh, the situation that we, found that we find ourselves in. Okay, we just have a moment left, so I want to uh, give the last word to Mr. Blake. You, you've already talked uh, about the fact that you're looking, that your party's looking to the procedure committee to, to see more uh, evidence, more information about Mr. Fergus's uh, decision. So um, can you be a bit more specific about what extra evidence you're looking to see and how that will affect whether you and your uh, caucus colleagues feel that you're actually going to be able to trust Mr. Fergus as an impartial speaker going forward? Well, I won't be the NDP member on the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, so I'm going to leave that to my colleague who sits on the committee to, to get a sense of what kind of evidence they think is appropriate to look at and how they're going to conduct those proceedings. What I would say that I don't think has been talked a lot about so far, I'm very glad to have Chris here on the panel today. I think he's done a good job of representing the Conservative position. I don't think that this debate has helped by having Mr. Scheer be the point person on this for the Conservatives. One of the long until Mr. Scheer, there was a long-standing and unbroken tradition of speakers not getting into partisan politics after being speaker. He subsequently ran for leader of, of a political party and now he's the House leader, which is the partisan point person for the Conservatives in the House of Commons. And and they've been mobilizing his experience in the speaker's office in order to try and make their points. I don't think that that has been helpful in terms of the debate, which is why I'm glad to, to see a guy like Chris here who has not been speaker himself. Been and speaker. it's fair game. It's fair game for him to play that partisan role. I really think that when Mr. Shear is talking about the dignity of the office of speaker, he should be reflecting on the nature of his own career. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks to all three of you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. 
Today is December 6th. That means it's now 34 years since the killing of 14 women at Montreal's École Polytechnique. It also means Canadians are marking the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women, remembering the victims from 1989 and highlighting the gender-based violence still happening. Members of Parliament also marked the day with a moment of silence. Let's talk more about gender-based violence and what today means. Paulette Sr. is President and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation. Paulette, thanks for joining me today. And it goes without saying, December 6, 1989 was a horrific and tragic day. Why does what happened in Montreal remain significant after so many years? Well, you know, as you said, it was tragic. It was the worst uh, mass shooting that we have seen in this country uh, for quite a while up until 2020. So it was really a moment in history that then uh, became a movement, uh, to be quite frank, a movement to address uh, and to respond and, in fact, end gender-based violence in this country. And it was important because I think it highlighted what what many already knew that that gender inequality was a problem that gender-based violence was a problem but until we saw it so horrific in front of us until we heard the story uh right across this country i don't think that it was really taken seriously so as i said it, it was a moment in time that then generated a movement to be able to respond to a number of issues related to gender-based violence Okay, so uh, talk to me more about the situation today in Canada, because there are some staggering numbers out there. A woman or girl is killed every 48 hours on average in this country. Nearly 70% of women know another woman who has been abused. What do numbers like that say about the scope of gender-based violence in this country in the year 2023? It's a bit of a stark picture, isn't it? it it's it's a it paints a picture of what the reality is. We also know that uh, just under half of women in Canada have experienced gender-based violence from an intimate partner in their lifetime. So what it's saying is that this is not an uncommon issue, and it certainly shouldn't be an issue that we remain silent about. That uh, and and the silence has really uh, done significant damage to being able to address it. And and for every 48 hours, I don't know about you, but when I heard the latest stats, it made my head spin. It really, uh, for me, just 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 made it so clear that we still have a clear and present danger to women's lives in this country, to girls' lives, to the lives of gender diverse people, and that we have so much work still to be done. And unless we take concerted action, uh, such as what would come with declaring gender-based violence an epidemic, that we were doomed to keep seeing these kinds of numbers. Right. I want to ask you about that, about those declarations, because we have seen some local governments declaring intimate partner violence as an, as an epidemic. What is the significance of making that kind of declaration? Mm-hmm. Well, we saw that with the recent uh, uh, killing in, in Sault Ste. Marie, that this was done by the, that municipal government. And, and I think it's a good thing. I think uh, that they're hearing those of us who have been doing this work for a long time. We know that when we hear the news and we, we, we can easily put together the, the, the indicators to tell what this is even before the news or, or, or it's reported in this way. 
because we've been able to learn that. And so what I think is important when we're talking about declaring this an epidemic is that it then sort of galvanizes the kinds of resources and attention and support that's needed to address it head on, such as we did with the pandemic and such as, as we do with disasters, that this is no different and we don't need to treat it differently. And so we know that federally it's been declared an epidemic. We know that several provinces and regions have declared an epidemic, but it is yet to be done in Ontario. And I think that's an important thing because there is no community in this country that's not touched by gender-based violence. All right, let me ask you then about the federal government, because uh, the government today and the prime minister uh, touting uh, the federal government's gender-based violence strategy, uh, touting its national action plan with the provinces and territories. So uh, at the top in this country, at the federal level, what do you think is missing right now? So it is, it is really important that we have a national action plan to end gender-based violence in this country. Uh, many of us worked to create that national action plan in partnership with the federal government. So I'm really glad to see it in place. To me, what's missing is uh, the sort of coordinated um, effort to make sure that we're measuring, that we're monitoring, and that we can see and track the results of that work. We don't it's not yet known what each province and territory is going to do and how they're going to address it and how those funds are going to be spent. And so I would like to see that information. I'd like to understand the kinds of investments that are being made. I'd like to be able to, to, to make sure that, that the, these regions are sitting down with folks who do work in this area and listening to thought leaders right and 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 implementing some of these practices that we know are going to work but if they're doing that in isolation that is where i worry now here in ottawa the federal ndp has also raised uh the issue of 150 million dollars in cuts to shelters do you share those concerns what's the significance of that well i think what that's referring to is the uh the, the additional dollars that were added uh, because of the pandemic to the funding of shelters. Um, and so I think that's probably what's being referred to. And then as we know with, with the investments that were made for many things during the pandemic, that those investments were pulled back uh, as the pandemic tailored off or continues to tailor off. Um, I, guess, I guess the point is that uh, the, the tailoring off of the impact of gender-based violence has still not gone down, but the money has. And so I think that's what we're talking about in terms of what are the kinds of investments that's needed to really address gender-based violence at the community level? And what are, what are, what are the, um, the, the coordinating efforts that's needed, not just from the federal government, but from, from the municipalities, from the various towns, from the various provinces and territories to make that happen? Okay, we've been talking a lot about governments and what they need to do on gender-based violence. Let me uh, end with this question for you. What do Canadians themselves need to be doing? And, you know, that's a really important question. I'm so glad you asked it. And there, there are things that we can do. We, we did a research just recently that showed that 90% of Canadians actually think that uh, gender-based violence is everyone's responsibility. Yet under half of us actually think that we would know what to do if someone uh, opened up and shared that they were in an abusive relationship. But 
what's really great is that there there are opportunities to learn how to do that. Uh, in 2020, the King Women's Foundation launched the Signal for Help, which is uh, a hand signal uh, that we created so that you can indicate to someone that you needed help in 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 any circumstance. But uh, if you don't know how to use such a signal or any such signal, um, uh, if you don't know how to respond to it, then then that's the problem. So I encourage Canadians go to signalresponse.ca and learn what they can do to support someone and to do that in a non-judgmental way, in a supportive way that says that that you care, and and to help us actually end the silence and stigma around gender-based violence so that we can actually move forward to, uh, to a much more aware population, to a condition where uh, folks can know that they're valued and treasured and that people care about them. All right. Paulette Senior is president and CEO of the Canadian Women's Foundation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Alberta is pushing back on the federal plan for methane emission cuts in the oil and gas sector. The premier has claimed those draft regulations are absurd, dangerous and illegal. And Alberta Premier Daniel Smith is with me now from Dubai and the COP28 climate conference. Premier, welcome again. My pleasure. I want to ask you about uh, the federal energy minister, Jonathan Wilkinson. He says... Uh, the methane regulations uh, resemble the 2025 plan that your province signed on to. He says that uh, methane emissions shouldn't have come uh, as a surprise, this federal plan to cap. He calls them an easy and cheap target in terms of uh, reducing emissions. What's your response to what the federal government is saying about your response? Well, then why did they surprise us? Why didn't they work with us? Because I, I think that there probably is a way that we can work together thing I always object to is that they just come up with pronouncements out of the blue without consulting with us and uh, then just expect that we're going to to accept it. Uh, I mean, I don't announce policy in their areas of jurisdiction. They certainly shouldn't be announcing policy in my provincial area of jurisdiction and certainly not doing it without giving us the courtesy of, of a phone call about it. So that's what I object to is that they, they constantly are announcing policy that they quite frankly, don't have a constitutional authority to do so. And we could work together collaboratively, but uh, that requires a spirit of cooperative federalism as opposed to unilateral action. Okay, and in your statement earlier this week, you did talk about that constitutional aspect. You also claimed that this is a plan that would only benefit the environment minister and his, uh, what you call his post office career. So have you spoken with Stephen Gilbo in Dubai this week? Yeah, I have seen him a couple of times. And I have to tell you, this is the, the thing I find so frustrating, is we could have come to Dubai in a, a spirit of, of collaboration and talked about all the great things that we are doing together as a, as a country and, and certainly in our province. We, we uh, discovered through many of the different uh, panels that I've been on that Alberta and Saskatchewan are leaders in carbon capture utilization and storage. We have a, a new carbon capture utilization and storage tax credit that I think is going to continue to accelerate that. We've partnered with the federal government on some major projects to decarbonize cement and petrochemicals and hydrogen. And so there was a there's a lot of ways in which we could have celebrated together the fact that we, we can work collaboratively. Instead, the, the environment minister has chosen to announce two unilateral actions w without uh, without consulting with us. And, and that's what I find very frustrating is that 
we we really should be uh, acting as as Team Canada here. And I don't I don't feel like uh, like Gibo has come into it with that attitude. Okay, just uh, let's just get some clarity then on this week's announcement on methane emissions and what specifically is it in that plan uh, that you object to beyond the fact that you feel uh, that this is outside federal jurisdiction? Are there, what are the actual uh, policies in place in those draft regulations that you're objecting to? Well, we have to know whether or not it's feasible. We, we, uh, in our plan, we were beginning the process of consulting with industry to find out whether a 75 to 80 percent target was feasible by 2030 without shutting in production. That's the main thing is that, that we know that there are some very simple measures that can be taken because we've taken many of them so far. And so the reason why we met our methane emission reduction targets early by reducing emissions 45%. We were supposed to do that by 2025. We announced that we've already uh, accomplished that goal. And so our approach is working because it is a collaborative approach. It's a, a approach based on industry best efforts. It's an approach that's flexible and it rewards innovation. And that's what we want to be able to retain. I don't know, quite frankly, what the what the federal plan is going to look like because they didn't consult me on it. Um, and if they had consulted me on it, I'd say, well, why don't you continue backing us in the approach that we have taken because it, ha it has proven to be effective. That's what I'm frustrated by. Okay, now you are at this uh, worldwide conference on climate change in Dubai and globally we are seeing major oil and gas companies with plans to uh, get to net zero methane emissions by 2030. Uh, some have talked about reducing 80 to 90 percent by 2030. The EU has its own law imposing uh, methane emissions limits. Uh, the federal government says these new measures uh, are in line with new American measures. So does not does that not suggest, uh, I should say, that there is a consensus on this issue? Well, consensus or no, we are a federated nation, which means that we are not a, a subordinate level of government to the federal government. We have our own area of jurisdiction defined by our constitution. And in our constitution, the provinces have the right to develop their resources, which means that the federal government cannot be unilaterally making any decisions that are going to impact our production. And we have to assert that time and time again, because they keep on invading our jurisdiction time and time again, and they keep getting slapped down by the federal courts. And so um, we, we would be more than happy to work towards a 2050 emissions reduction target, set reasonable milestones along the way. But we can't have the federal government threatening to use the criminal law power and fine people and put them in jail for reaching, for failing to achieve arbitrary targets that they didn't do enough consultation to find out whether they could be achieved in the first place. But this is the, 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 the method of operation of the federal government, and, and we're going to continue to call them out every time they overstep. Now, you've moved to use the Alberta Sovereignty Act over electricity regulations. Mm -hmm. Will you do the same for methane? I, I want to continue talking to industry about what this is going to, to, to look like. I can, I can tell you I'm, I'm more concerned about what I hear is another unilateral action coming, which is a, an emissions cap on the oil and gas sector, which I think will be a clear violation of the Constitution. Because, look, I mean, they're, they're talking about having a cap on a single industry centered in a single province on a single issue. And, and that, to me, is a pretty clear definition that that is something that should be uh, principally decided at the at the provincial level. So I still don't know what that's going to look like. Um, I, they, they said I could sign an NDA to, 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 to get the details in advance, but that's not the way our country is supposed to work. We're not supposed to have the federal government unilaterally making decisions and then us having to, to beg and plead to find out what the details are about. Are about. I, I think that cooperative federalism demands 
Could the federal government take a different approach? So far, they've refused to. And so I'm quite worried about what that's going to look like when they do eventually reveal it. Okay, well, let me finish on uh, on you with this then, because the federal energy minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, he also says uh, that there is no intent or, or effect of cutting production with this proposed emissions cap. He says it's going to be technically feasible, that it won't be tethered to global energy demand. What do you think of that? When they first announced it, they said that they wanted to reduce emissions 42% by 2030. The analysis we saw in that would have been that it would have resulted in a production cut of 1.2 million barrels per day. I can tell you with current prices, that would cut our revenues as a, as a province by $6.5 billion. That's about a third of our entire health budget. So you can see why I'm very concerned when the federal government starts making pronouncements and then tries to assure everybody it's not going to have an impact. The first time that they made an announcement, they blew it. And it was going to be something that was going to be very damaging to our economy. So I'll wait and see. But the point is, they, they shouldn't be making these unilateral pronouncements at all. They should be working with the provinces, especially with us, to make sure that we have something that's achievable. We've told them 2050 is an achievable target, and we're going to continue to try to work with them to understand the, the, the limitations. But we, we're, we're not going to let them take any action that will shut in our production. All right. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith, thanks for your time tonight from Dubai. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. And that is Primetime Politics for Wednesday. I'm Andrew Thompson in Ottawa. For all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching. Good night.